The following is a message from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. If you would remain standing as we pray, let us pray. Father God, we are grateful that you have gathered us here this morning together, that we may reflect upon your word. Uh, We pray that as we reflect upon it, that you would open our hearts, our ears, our eyes, that you would enable us to perceive the Lord Jesus Christ and hear him speaking therein through your word. We also pray, O Father, that you would apply the word to our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit, and that you would produce the fruit of holiness and sanctification to the glory of the triune name. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. As you know, the faculty this semester is uh, doing a series through the book of Hebrews. And so this morning, our text is going to be Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. So if you would open your Bibles to the ninth chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9. And I'll read verses 1 through 10. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. That great theologian, Bruce Springsteen, and perhaps I've just dated myself, has a song or had a song that uh, strikes a chord perhaps in all of us, songs called Glory Days. Remember as a younger person, uh, back in the days when MTV still played videos, that uh, you had the song go forth and it says, I had a friend, was a big baseball player back in high school. He could throw that speedball by you, make you look like a fool boy. Saw him the other night at this roadside bar. I was walking in, he was walking out. He, we went back inside, sat down, had a few drinks, but all he kept talking about was, and you know the hook, glory days. In other words, the song talks about reminiscing upon the past. 
And as often is the case, we often do not look at the past uh, with uh, equal judgment. In other words, we always say hindsight is twenty twenty, but that's not always the case. Sometimes we color the past with a tint, with an optimistic look that actually wasn't really there. Well, in a sense, at least in terms of reminiscing about the past, the glory days, thinking that somehow the past was better uh, than the present, that is what our passage is about here in the ninth chapter of Hebrews. If you recall, at least as far as the general context of the epistle of Hebrews, is that the author was dealing with a group of people, likely Jewish Christians of the diaspora, the dispersion, who for a number of reasons were contemplating going back to those glory days, if you will, going back to the time of the temple, and of course before it, the tabernacle. Christ had come, but they wanted to turn back the clock and go back to the way things used to be. The Levitical priests, to the temple, to the sacrificial system. Perhaps they were a bit uncomfortable with the way things now were in the wake of the advent of Christ. And perhaps that discomfort was coming from the persecution that they were facing by other Jews who were saying, what are you doing abandoning the ways of our fathers? What are you doing abandoning the glory of our tradition?" Well, in a word, the author tells us here, as well as his recipients, perhaps in subtle language, that you cannot turn back the clock. Time has irreversibly marched forward, and you cannot turn back the clock. And in fact, what he's saying, again, in quite subtle language, but nevertheless, it's quite powerful, is that he is saying that the glory days, if you will, lie not in our past, but rather in the present and indeed even in the future. Through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, the long-awaited glorious future that God had promised to his people has been brought into the present. As you can imagine, there are a host of implications associated with this awe-filled truth. So let's give attention to the text And see how this is so. Now the author begins this portion of his letter by transitioning to the broad survey of the superiority of the new covenant to the old. uh, To discussing the particular role of the tabernacle itself. Which in a sense we can say was the centerpiece of the old or of the Mosaic covenant. Because it was there at the tabernacle and later the temple that uh, God would meet with his people. Where his people would, if you will, ambulate and, and pilgrim to that location that they might worship God and offer to him praises uh, and worship and sacrifices. And so in verses 1 through 5, the author discusses the architecture of the tabernacle. The Holy of Holies, the incense altar, the Ark of the Covenant. The contents of the ark, that golden urn in which they had placed some of the manna uh, that had rained down upon the people. Aaron's staff that God had used to prove to the people that indeed Aaron and Moses were his selected representatives when the people were rebellion or rebelling. As well as the tablets of the law upon which uh, the Ten Commandments had been inscribed. 
Now, in many ways, I can't help but think that our author here is setting up his recipients. Think of it. If they wanted to return back to the good old days, then he's singing a tune that is right up their alley. You can imagine as they were sitting there listening to the letter as it was read to them, and they're thinking, yes, the tabernacle, the temple, yes, the holy of holies, the Levitical priesthood, the sacrifices. And so in this way, you can imagine that, they, that, that the author, uh, I almost said Paul, and sometimes I lean in that way, but oftentimes I don't, so don't read too much into that. Okay? Nevertheless, here the author is saying things to them that would have been undoubtedly comfortable to them, familiar to them. But then in many ways what he does is he takes the rug and he rips it out from underneath them quite quickly. He says in verse 5 there, words that perhaps would have been disquieting to them, of these things, meaning all of the things of the tabernacle, we cannot now speak in detail. Thinking, what are you talking about? This is what we want to hear. I mean, this is what we're trying to go back to. This is what we really like. This is perhaps uh, going back uh, to the things that will keep us from being persecuted by uh, our fellow Jews. And so to an audience who wanted to go back to these things, this would like, be like a skip on a record. Okay, wait a minute. Maybe not a skip on a record. How about a, a skip on a CD? Well, wait, no, no, no. How about the download of the MP3 gets interrupted, right? You've got to keep up with these things. Well, by writing this, what the author is telling us, he's signaling to us and to the, to the audience, is that something more significant, something more important than the tabernacle and the temple and all of its furnishings has arrived. So the author even goes on a little bit further in verses 6 and 7, and he's, again, maybe giving them some some comforting words that he's going to quickly pull away and he talks about and he alludes to the Day of Atonement. And of course, that was the most important day in Israel's calendar. If the Day of Atonement went poorly, then it would mean that God would perhaps eject his people from the land because they were likely still in their sins. I mean, if you read the the literature of intertestamental Judaism, or later uh, as it's been codified uh, in uh, the, uh, the, the written laws, it's been, uh, as the oral tradition has been codified, you look at it and it's a huge, big phone book-like kind of book. And when you read uh, the sections upon the priestly preparations, they were so intent on ensuring that things would go well that they went to excruciating details to ensure that failure would not happen. Well, how so? Well, the high priest... They wanted to make sure that the high priest was ready. So for days before uh, the Day of Atonement, they would sit the high priest down and surround him with other priests and constantly feed him scripture. And if the high priest started to fall asleep, they would snap their fingers in front of him to keep him awake so that he would be in the right mindset. And then if he again started to fall asleep, they talk of laying out cold stones and they would say, walk across these stones. And then they were so worried that they said, you know what we need is just in case the high priest's wife dies, we need a backup wife ready to go at a moment's notice. So, sorry for you ladies who are married. Yes, you can imagine there would be a backup wife waiting. 
Because if the high priest's wife died, that could disrupt things. You can imagine all of the pressure. And so here in verse 6, he's writing that the priests would make preparations. (laughs) He doesn't go into those details, but preparations, which of course would include the biblical instructions for purification, refers to the lighting of the lamp, the burning of incense, and the placement of the showbread. And so these are the things that the priests would do on a regular basis in the outer portion of the tabernacle or later the temple. But ultimately the high priest, he says, would enter into the Holy of Holies only once a year. And as the author states, not without blood, which was offered on his own behalf as well as on behalf of the nation, even on behalf of their unintentional sins. In other words, the author is saying that this was no light matter. Not just simply your intentional sins. We know we have a lot of those. But think how many of our unintentional sins stack up against us. Sins of omission. And so historically, it's these actions that would uh, bring about the cleansing of the people from their sin. Leviticus 16, verse 30. On this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. What's interesting here to note is that the author uses some important vocabulary that appears several other places in his letter. And he specifically states that the priest offers or offered blood. And this is purposeful. This is deliberate. Because in the verses that follow, which are beyond our scope this morning, but nevertheless we should note them, listen to what the author says. In Hebrews 9.14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself. Hear the language of the Levitical priests offering blood. That same language is now applied to Christ. Offering not the blood of an animal or of a goat, but of his very own blood offered himself without blemish. He says in chapter 9, verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. 9.28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, He sat down at the right hand of God. And briefly we can note what high priest ever sat down in the Holy of Holies. But Jesus Christ, our great high priest, enters the Holy of Holies and he does the unthinkable. He takes a seat because he offered himself. And so what the author here is saying is that Christ's once and for all perfect, sinless, holy and righteous offering has completely superseded the Levitical offerings of the past. And here he's using this term to offer, to draw the connection between the Old Testament shadow offerings of the priests and the all-sufficient once-for-all offering of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And so notice, if you will, how this, in a sense, comes now to a culminating point here in verses 8 through 10, as he says this, by this, meaning things that have gone before that he's spoken of, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. 
which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Now, beloved, I think that perhaps, I mean, this is an arguable statement, but nevertheless, I want to say that I believe that these are some of the most crucial words in the whole of the epistle. Because do you hear what the author is saying? He's saying, as long as that first section of the tabernacle, or later the temple, is still standing, and then he says, which is symbolic for this present age, he says, if it's still standing... If that outer temple is there, which bars the way into the Holy of Holies, then it means that you are still in your sin. It means that Christ has not come to offer that once for all perfect sacrifice. And it also means that as Paul writes in Galatians 1.4, that Christ has come to deliver us from the present evil age, that he has not delivered us from the present evil age. He has not ushered in the beginnings of the new creation, that inbreaking of the new heavens and earth, not in the future, but here and now in the present. But the fact of the matter is, and this is the whole point of what the author is saying, is that Christ had come. He had offered that once-for-all sacrifice, and even though the temple was likely still standing, some date the epistle somewhere around 49, 50 A.D., the temple wasn't destroyed until 70 A.D., even though it was still standing, do you remember what significant event happened at the crucifixion of Christ? When Christ cried, It is finished! That veil that separated the outer and inner temple was torn from top to bottom. It was torn from top to bottom, indicating that now the way into the Holy of Holies had been reopened. Now, of course, shortly thereafter, after the crucifixion of Christ, uh, in the march of history, God would place an exclamation point upon Christ's declaration that it was finished by destroying the temple in 70 AD and raising it to the ground. But don't miss the point. Through Christ's work, the way into the Holy of Holies has been opened. No longer do those sword-wielding cherubim Those glorious but nevertheless fierce creatures guard the approach to the throne of God. They no longer stand at the gates, if you will, but rather they have receded back to the throne of God because the way into the Holy of Holies has been opened by the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, our great shepherd of the sheep. And instead of fearing as the great, as the high priests of old used to fear going into the Holy of Holies, They were fearful of going in there. They used to have bells on the bottom of their robes. Why? Well, because if they happen to die while they were in the Holy of Holies, who's going to go in to get them out? You going to go in? I'm not going to go in. You know, and they would even tie a rope, tradition says, so they could haul them out. I'm not going in there. Why? Well, because you might be struck dead. Beloved, there's no more fear. But instead, we can boldly Enter the Holy of Holies. As the author says in chapter 10, verse 22, he says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed 
with pure water. No longer do we have those ceremonial sacrifices that the author says in the end didn't cleanse you from sin, but rather we have the once for all, definitive, cleansing, purifying, holy sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so we need not fear God's wrath or the immediate destruction as the priests of old, fearful of death with the slightest of errors as the ambulated in the Holy of Holies. But rather, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, we have also obtained access by faith, into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I can't be sure, but that language sounds very similar to the architectural language of the the temple and that now we have been able to enter into God's presence and stand in his glorious presence. Notice what else occurs as a result of Christ's work. Not only has the way into the Holy of Holies been reopened, that also means that the age to come, the eschaton, the future, has dawned. Just as Christ began to create on the first day of the week in Genesis 1-1, so too with his own resurrection from the dead, uh, on the first day of the week, Christ has begun to create anew. But now, through the outpouring of the Spirit, whom the author of Hebrews calls the power of the age to come, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, Christ has brought the future into the present. And unlike the Old Testament, and unlike in the, if you will, the present evil age, uh, the new creation does not consist of tents and buildings, but of God's temple being built with living stones, with you. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. Echoing back to chapter 65 and 66 of Isaiah, The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20, And following Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you see why now, why the author was telling his recipients, you can't go back? You cannot turn back the clock and go back to what you perceive were the glory days of Israel. The author was telling him, in effect, that with the advent of Christ, the old sacrificial system was obsolete. And that he was also telling him that with the advent of Christ, history has irreversibly moved forward. In a word, we can say that the Mosaic economy is utterly incompatible with the eschaton. For in the words of the author, in chapter 8, verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Imagine if you were to build a grand structure. And in order to build that grand structure, it would require scaffolding. Imagine saying, as workers were pulling down the scaffolding, no, 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 don't don't pull down the scaffolding. We want that. We need that. The architect would say, we don't need that. The building is here. We no longer need the scaffolding. Well, that's what 
the author's recipients were saying, leave us the scaffolding, we want to go back to the scaffolding. He's saying, no, how could you go back to the scaffolding? It's being taken away and something far more glorious has come. Beloved, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews was passionate about instructing his recipients about their glory days. Their glory days were not in the past, but in their present and in their future. The future has been brought into the present by our great high priest, Jesus Christ. And as you can well imagine, this message is perennially relevant. And that we must continue to look to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. We must not think that our future lies in bringing back the past of the Old Testament, instituting Israel's laws in our own nation. We must not think that our future lies in rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem as some of our well-intentioned but nevertheless misguided brothers and sisters do. Rather, our future lies in the present because Christ has inaugurated the age to come here and now through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Christ, beloved, has unleashed the Holy Spirit, the power of the age to come. And if we are to grow in our faith and produce the fruit of holiness, then the answer does not lie in the shackles of the Mosaic economy, but in breathing the very air of the age to come, that spirit-filled air of the eschaton. We breathe that air each and every day that we immerse ourselves in the scriptures and each and every Lord's Day when we join God's people and when we we pilgrim to Mount Zion where we are fed with Christ, the holy manna from heaven by word and sacrament. Beloved, remember this. Our glory days are now. As God continues to glorify his name as he transforms us into the perfect and holy and righteous image of his son, But our glory days are also yet to come as we eagerly await the consummation of all things. Until that day, pray to our Heavenly Father that by Christ through his Spirit he would set our hearts and minds upon these sublime truths that we would realize that because of Christ, our glory days are now. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest and shepherd of the sheep. We pray that you would help us to remember that Christ is our glory and that our glory is now because our great high priest has entered the Holy of Holies on our behalf. He has shed his blood to bring about the forgiveness of our sins. He has clothed us in his righteous robe through faith by imputation. And he has set us upon that path as we pilgrim to the new Jerusalem. Father, make us faithful. Glorify yourself in and through us, we pray. Help us to realize that our glory days are now. We pray and ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Copyright 2010, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.